This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who will offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact, heading towards the end of the college term. And it's always a very interesting period. We're getting some sunshine. There is a campus with no students on it, which is always a very peculiar um, sensation when you're walking around. But we are all very heavily caught up in the exam process. Don't tell anyone, but the results will be issued soon to students. But we won't be doing them in the middle of this particular podcast. Confidentiality at all costs comes first. Now, as the year ends, we've had a lot of people on from a lot of industries. We've had a lot of um, UCD faculty staff. We've also had people from the worlds of technology, government, uh, diplomacy. We, we, you name it, you name a sector, and we've pretty much had a go at it. The one sector we haven't really talked to anyone from is the banking world, um, particularly the international banking world. But we're going to correct that today because we have a very interesting guest who's running a bank on a European, pan-European basis. He's going to tell us a little bit about what that's like. And he's also going to tell us a bit like his time working in business here in Dublin as well and his links with UCD, of which this company has several. So that guest is Fernando Vicario, who is the CEO of Bank of America Europe, DAC, to give its full legal uh, title. Um, Fernando is a Spaniard who's been well-traveled in various other European countries. And first of all, very welcome to the podcast, Fernando. Thank you, Emmett, and delighted to be here with you today and uh, say something about what we do here at Bank of America. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we haven't really been doing much banking uh, content, so it's always good to talk to the international banks because, as you can probably imagine, Fernando, the Irish domestic banks get a lot of airtime and a lot of oxygen, so it's nice to hear the, the other side of that thing. First of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. As I said, you have an interesting uh, backstory, uh, a bit of Spanish in there, a bit of German in there as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself to get, to get us underway. Sure, I'm delighted to. So I'm indeed Spanish, but born and raised in Germany in the Black Forest. And I left my hometown at the age of 27 to work in Spain, then in Germany, then in the UK, then in the US, indeed in Boston, which, as you know, is an extension of Ireland. Yes, the 33rd county, we call it, you know. <laughs> Indeed. I came back to the UK and then two and a half years ago, I got this job here as the CEO for Bank of America Europe DAC, which is basically the result of we establishing our legal entity structure post-Brexit in a way that we can do business throughout the entire European Union. Uh, so yes, we are a big foreign bank in, uh, in Ireland and with uh, around about 1,300 people here on the ground and branches all over the place across uh, Europe. The other thing I would say is post-Brexit, a number of European banks, as you know, have uh, moved uh, into different jurisdictions, including uh, U.S. banks and Canadian banks. So today here in Ireland, you have 40 foreign banks, which is uh, great and an attraction or evidence that indeed Dublin is an attraction. Yes, it's, it's, I mean, we have been the beneficiaries of this process. How difficult was it to, to kind of uh, make that adjustment or that transition sort of from pre-Brexit to post-Brexit just in Bank of America? Was there a lot of moving parts to get right at that time? Well, to be frank, uh, so we have a bank entity here in Dublin, which is headquartered here. It's a bank with $75 billion of balance sheets. So it's a sizable bank, and a bank which is reviewed or supervised by the Central Bank of Europe by the Central Bank of Ireland and by the so-called Single Resolution Board in Brussels. So we have three major regulators and uh, we had to indeed get acquainted 
to their requirements. Before, our primary regulator was in the UK plus the US, but now it's a full-fledged bank, systemically important bank. We have to obey to laws, rules, and regulation here in Europe, obviously. And it has taken time to assemble the team, but there's the other reason why we are in Dublin. We have great talent supply here and people in all sorts of areas, technology, operations, finance, risk management, HR, you name it. So all of our different parts of the bank, uh, you have talent that uh, is attracted to work here for us and we are very happy to be here. But yes, it was a major change. That change is done and dusted. So we are now focused on making business happen. Ireland's obviously very grateful to get this investment. It, it, you know, it, it could have gone anywhere. And I know that Germany and, and places like Frankfurt, Paris did well as well from the, the shakeout. But what did Ireland have to offer that sort of uh, made it conducive to you shifting some operations in, into this uh, location? Well, before Brexit, we had already 400 people here. Uh, so it was a mini hub. And post-Brexit, it became a major hub. A few drivers, obviously. Uh, I mentioned already talent supply. Uh, but also great universities that supply future bankers or people working in banking. And then, of course, our clients. In Ireland, we have a lot of U.S. multinational clients that have their regional headquarter in Europe here in Ireland. And those clients, they get served out of our Dublin office. And then the other aspect that matters, we have a large leasing company based in Ireland, which is called Bank of America Leasing International, focused on transportation assets in particular, and so the combination of all these legacy presents uh, got us to the conclusion it would be a great place to be with our EU headquartered bank in Dublin. And it has come true. We have, by the way, a campus in Leopardstown, so southwest Dublin. And then we have our headquarter here in Hatch Street, opposite to Ivy Gardens, which is not a bad place to be. No, indeed. Now, w- one thing that was difficult for you personally was, I, I believe you were appointed during COVID, you would have been uh, 2020. So that must have been a tough, a tough old time to be, to be moving roles. Well, Emmett, you're right. Managing something with uh, or from the distance is not as easy as being in the office and get to meet your, your colleagues. I knew a lot of people already working in Ireland, but I didn't know uh, many people. So as you remember, two years ago, 85% of the world was in shutdown. So the good news is that I was not alone. Everybody else, too, worked from home. Of course, post-COVID, the workplace environment has changed. To give you an idea, some of our teams, they work three days a week from uh, the office and two days from home. Interestingly, you get people that are desperate to only work in the office and others that would like to work only from home. So the buying behavior in brackets of talent has changed in terms of uh, its demand towards its employer, and we are not alone. Uh, The other aspect that matters about Ireland, I suppose, is it's not only about banks here. Now you have also high tech, fintech, and related industries. And, uh, and and they are nice competitors for that great talent. Yes, and Fernando, obviously here in Ireland, we have pretty much full employment or are certainly very close to it, depending on what definition you, you take. So it's a tight labour market here, and it's probably tight labour market in other locations across Europe. Is that a challenge for, for I suppose, any bank, but yourselves included, to, to get who you want? I mean, there's not a lot of slack in that labour market at the moment. Obviously, graduates come out, but they're snapped up pretty quickly as well. So has that been a... A big challenge when you've got big numbers like you have? Uh, well, some subsectors are now cutting back. You have seen announcements from uh, high tech and some fintech reducing their workforce. We are not. So I guess uh, stability and predictability of your job matters. But one way, obviously, to reduce, if you will, the risk of not getting the right stuff in the right place is that we've seen in Ireland a major inflow of people from all over Europe. 
so here in Dublin, we have almost 40 different nationalities working for us. It's always difficult to get high quality talent, but that's the reason why we also entertain these partnerships with universities. It's not about getting out and offering people a nice internship or a nice graduate program. We try to go out earlier and provide uh, obviously different universities an overview of what the bank does in different capacities. We don't only recruit here in Dublin for Dublin. Here in Dublin, we recruit also for other locations. And then in other locations outside Ireland, they recruit for us too, people that come from academia that want a job in uh, banking. And I'll give you one example. A banker looks always like a person seems to with a tie. But in the bank industry, we have an army of, for example, software engineers. In fact, we have partnerships with certain universities and we target obviously UCD as well, where we are looking for talented software engineers that are interested in a career in technology. And Bank of America has over 2,400 different patents. So we also invent stuff. We also get registered as patents. And this happens because we have great technology folks. Here in Dublin, uh, cybersecurity is a big deal. You get great talent working and protecting the bank and the industry from cybersecurity attacks. So uh, it's not just investment banking, which sounds very fashionable, very great. It's not just a, a trader in global markets, but there are many other jobs within a banking industry sector that can be of interest uh, to folks. Yes, and just for the, the benefit of our listeners, uh, Fernando does have a tie on at the moment, but he was at an event earlier today, so he has a, he has a good excuse for, for, for putting the tie on. But again, a bit more serious point, Fernando, is there, in terms of attracting youngsters and graduates and people in their early phases of the career, does banking as an industry have to do more of a sales job? Is there a certain image there that can be off-putting to youngsters or, or do you think that they think beyond that? What, what's your own sort of view on that? Well, my assessment today, based on the applications that we get, is that there's still huge interest. Uh, but of course, you want a diverse talent base. We are not hiring only economists and folks that have studied business administration. Uh, we also hire people that have completely different backgrounds. And the reason I point this out is, uh, for example, in the world of risk management, you want people which are uh, thinking outside the box and identify risks that we can't see today, that we can't see coming today, that help us to be a better equipped bank for times when things go wrong. And, and I say this because, you know, during COVID, we all had our concerns, what is going on in the financial market space. And, um, and, and at the time, we had an inflow of credit requests from corporate clients around the world which basically exploded within three months. Deal with this stuff and then uh, manage risk uh, properly so that your regulators don't get over you requires good talent. So therefore, back to your question, is it difficult? There's always difficult to find the right uh, choice, but is the quantity of applicants an issue? No way, no, no. It's, uh, people continue to be interested in working in the banking industry. By the way, we hire people from other industries as well. So. Sometimes people that work in technology, in a technology company, join our bank. Or we have also, for example, aircraft engineers working for us in our leasing department. They give us evaluation of the asset value on planes. Uh, they, they, they give us an indication of the residual risks that we incur. So I try to 
emphasize here the diversity of jobs opportunities within an ecosystem called banking industry. And do you think you might benefit from the fact that the tech companies have been in a bit of a contraction phase? They have been laying off people. Do you expect the banks generally to kind of absorb some of those people? Do you think that could play to your strengths that you will get some of the staff that were previously in the tech companies? Well, to be frank, uh, the tech companies are competition, but they are also a great complementary part of the uh, offering that we have. We banks, we can't create everything on our own. And therefore, you know, will we absorb people that leave the tech industry to come to our side of the tech industry? Uh, difficult to argue at this uh, point in time. But what I would say is we continue to build out our hub here in Dublin in certain subsets, like I mentioned earlier, cybersecurity, but also anti-money laundering. As you know, post uh, uh, the Russia-Ukraine uh, invasion, uh, we have a flood of sanctions. We have experts in sanctions risk. So these folks are mainly lawyers or have some legal background. So um, it's ongoing healthy competition. But I would also like to add, we make a strong effort to have strong diversity and uh, inclusion. So uh, we have a particular, uh, I think, successful set of networks. For example, we have our women's leadership network. We have our LGBT network. We have our disability network. We have our military network. We have our multicultural network. All these networks are part of a well-defined diversity and inclusion strategy that we have been pursuing for many years. And as you know, corporate and social responsibility as part of a broader broader ESG agenda matters. And I would expect nothing less from students today to do their own due diligence when they want to join a company. How does this company behave? How important is this company's mentorship program, sponsorship program, training program? Are they really open-minded? Do they have flexibility in terms of uh, teams or geographies where somebody can work? If all these uh, questions tick the right boxes for an applicant, well, then come and join Bank of America. Okay. <laughs> There's the pitch. There's the pitch. Uh, I suppose, Fernando, the other thing, you had mentioned sustainability there, and obviously sustainability can mean a lot of different things. It can mean in your operations, you know, using less plastics and waste and so on. It can involve what you invest in or how the client's money is managed. There's a lot of different ways that sustainability goes through a thread through a banking institution. When you hear that word, well, what do you think is most important for banking to be sustainable? Which part would you sort of emphasize? Well, I would uh, say immediately uh, sustainability is big, big business. The reason I say this is because we banks play a meaningful role in accelerating the transition from brown to light green to dark green. We are not cutting off people that are today operating in brown industries, but we clearly have an agenda to manage our own climate risk profile and make sure that these brown companies get the means to actually transform themselves sooner rather than later. The reason I say this is we made a commitment back in 2007 to deploy $25 billion in sustainable finance activity. Today, that same commitment that started many years ago is actually $1.5 trillion between now and uh, 2030, which puts our bankers nicely under pressure to actually deliver to our clients capital that they use with ESG compliant uh, purposes. If you put together the top five American banks, 
together they have uh, committed seven trillion dollars between now and the next 10 years so for everybody who is listening to this broadcast what i would say is uh, esg is not some nice temporary fashionable opportunity that's a long-term opportunity to help us get the world to a better place and we banks play any meaningful role the other thing i would say is if you work for example in our chief financial officer department all of a sudden you have to retrain to disclose non-financial items like climate risk profiles so that's now a requirement it will be mandatory for 2024 so there's a new wave of accounting standards if you will coming through that not just we banks but also corporates have to bring uh, to bear and i think it's exciting it's exciting to give people the opportunity to expand their horizon and and keep and keep moving yeah and, and just to, sorry just to clarify when you say brown companies well, what do you mean fossil fuel companies that are still doing it but transitioning out is that for example yes absolutely and uh, if we would say today oh we cut off uh, uh, all companies from our uh, capital supply from our lending activity there would be obviously a mistake but if you bank the right companies that are developing the right type of agendas to get over a period of time to the right place that's our job the same obviously i can tell you the opposite and would say companies that are in the solar energy space require also huge financings or uh, aircrafts that may fly in the future with different types of technology our job is to finance the airline industry uh, which we do with a great amount of, of passion now, tell us a little bit about the bank itself. Obviously, most of our listeners are more familiar with retail banking. They're less familiar with investment banking. Um, just tell us a bit about what Bank of America Europe does out of Dublin, you know, the kind of banking services you offer out of the city. You know, just give us a sense of the company itself and, and the kind of things it does. So Bank of America has been in Ireland uh, for more than 50 years. Uh, we have uh, $75 billion in, in assets, which means a couple of things. Firstly, we're a big lender with our own balance sheet. Secondly, we are a big transaction banking provider. So everything around cash, treasury and liquidity management in country, in region in Europe, but also globally. And there are basically three large banks in the world that offer transaction banking services uh, globally. Then the third leg that matters uh, is uh, M&A. So our mergers and acquisitions activity happen in this uh, legal entity. And uh, it is delivered, obviously, on the ground through our Bank of America Europe DAC branches in all the different countries, including here in Ireland, where we have uh, bankers sitting. And then I should also mention we have an area of banking, which is our global markets asset financing business, which includes distressed uh, debt activities, which includes uh, mortgage lending, uh, mainly in the professional space. Obviously, we don't do retail, as you alluded to earlier. And, uh, and then we help people, generally speaking, raise uh, capital to finance their requirements. We also do some corporate derivatives activity, so risk management on behalf of our clients. So it's a pretty wide range of activity with, as I mentioned earlier, round numbers, 1,300 people here, uh, plus another 700 across the European Union. And then, of course, we have an additional hub in, uh, in Paris through our broker dealer, which has another 700 people. So in total, in our region, in Europe, Middle East and Africa, we have 8,000 people. Now, Fernando, I hate to be very parochial and selfish about this, but <laughs> bear with me. But do, do you see the Irish operation, well, it's the European operation based on 
do you see expansion opportunities? Do you see growth in it? Or, or you know, I know that's very hard to see because it depends how different business lines are performing, obviously. And it's not a it's not a cheap location, Dublin. We have to be fair about that. But do do you see this hub that you've kind of put together? Do you see it growing in the future? What, what's what's your instinct on that? Yeah, well, the answer is yes. Uh, and I say this uh, twofold. One, we have a significant uh, own capital that actually is higher than significantly higher than the regulatory requirements. And the aim is to have that capital to support future growth. So absolutely. Uh, in fact, this year we are growing our numbers, if you will, top line revenues and bottom line. Last year, we just actually uh, filed our annual report and we had $2 billion in revenues, $720 million in pre-tax profitability. So it's a profitable operation, which is what the regulators want. They want um, banks to be healthy, both capital, but also in terms of the, of the earnings capacity. And we continue to grow here and serve our clients. Remember, now, Ireland is a big beneficiary of foreign direct investments from many places, but in particular from the US. So our US clients, as they grow here, we grow with them. That's the job here. That's the objective. And Fernando, I know that you're very conscious of not just being, you know, a kind of a plate on a wall, that you want to put down real roots in the community here and develop certain projects you have done for the benefit of our listeners, a very interesting sponsorship um, arrangement with UCD itself here at the Business School and Howard University. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that one in particular, and then we can kind of broaden out the conversation from there? Our Bank of America Foundation it does a lot of things around the world. So we support uh, arts and culture in general, and that includes also strategic partnerships with uh, uh, universities, high quality universities like uh, UCD. And when the opportunity was brought to us, I was thinking, well, wait a minute, what are we doing actually with uh, with UCD? Well, firstly, uh, we've invited your students to come and join our campus recruitment activity. Secondly, this year, uh, 19 students will join us as interns or full-time graduates. And it's only this year. And it happens year after year after year. And then we thought, well, now UCD having a partnership with Howard University, what a perfect opportunity to actually engage in this exchange program and bring together students from two different continents. So uh, yes, we made our contribution and uh, and the job here, to be frank, is no different than, uh, for example, what we do in the arts space. Here, the National Gallery in Ireland, if you go there and see today the Lavina Fontana exhibition, well, Bank of America sponsored that exhibition. This morning, I had the opportunity to go to the Irish Museum of Modern Arts but we have lent for free a actually photographic collection, which is the first time traveling outside the United States to a European country, in this case, Ireland. And then if you take, for example, Abbey Theatre during COVID, Abbey Theatre had to shut down. So we decided to support Abbey Theatre and be a contributor to, re- to retaining and preserving Irish culture here in Dublin. Or I'll give you another example, Rethink Island, has a phenomenal program, the so-called Women in Ireland Fund, which created 1,000 sustainable jobs for marginalized women. And uh, and we have just launched the Women in Ireland Empowerment Fund that uh, creates another 850 jobs, sustainable jobs, and training opportunities for marginalized women. So, uh, uh, Emmett, the, the, the real point that I'm trying to make here is we are not just here to make money. We are here to also give back to society. And normally when we do these things, like the partnership with UCD, 
We want our employees to engage and to go to the university, mingle with your students, get also their views, because we as an employer, uh, we are good listeners. You know, the next generation of professionals has different priorities. And as these priorities, and I would say buying behavior as an employee change, we want to adapt to change and not stay here in the same way we've been doing banking 10, 20 or 50 years ago when we arrived in Ireland. Yeah, well, it's great to hear, particularly the, the material about Howard, but also helping the Abbey at, at that time of crisis was, was a big deal. You know, they, they, the whole theatre scene really was on the ground and massively damaging period for them. So it was great to hear that that was, a, was done, you know. Um, if we could just finally, I suppose, turn a little bit to the banking market here in Europe in particular. You know, obviously, price loans are repricing. We're in a whole new era of higher interest rates. We don't know how high they're going to go. Obviously, the central banks um, will have a huge influence over the trajectory of that. But what, what kind of banking landscape do you see in Europe, you know, on the back of these rising rates? I mean, are you, are you working a lot with your own customers? Do you see banks generally as a sector having to incur a little bit of, you know, bad loans and, and impairments or something? Or do you think that's not going to happen? Or how do you see this, just this change around that what would become to this cheaper money we've been all become so addicted to, some people would say, but we're moving to a new era. And what does that era look like in, in your view? Well, post-financial crisis, uh, the financial services industry in general has deleveraged substantially and has basically put the house in order. And, and that is tested every other year. There's a so-called stress test, which is conducted by the authorities, by the regulatory authorities. And then there's constant uh, oversight of what the regulators actually expect us to do. And so uh, quite frankly, the European banking landscape, the 112 systemically important banks throughout uh, Euroland, they are in good shape. That's a simple fact. Now, uh, if you compare, the earnings capacity of European banks versus US banks, clearly European banks are behind. And uh, there are different factors, uh, but in America, you have some large banks like Bank of America, where uh, our operations are scalable and huge. I mean, coast to coast in America means basically a North to South Europe. And if you have one bank uh, or two banks or three banks with a pan-European offering, they can clearly extract more value for their clients and for their shareholders. So the European banking landscape, to answer your question, remains highly fragmented. Pan-European consolidation is not yet happening. Also, the regulators and the politicians, they are pushing hard for a so-called banking union and a capital markets union. But uh, it's a difficult and slow-moving process. It will not happen overnight. Uh, but it may happen over time that there may be some consolidation, but it's taking, uh, I would say, a lot of effort to get boardrooms comfortable that something like this would be advantageous. So look, if I look at Bank of America alone, we represent the consolidation of over 200 US banks in the history of the existence of Bank of America it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, and um, you, 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 you've you got a good reputation for surviving crises. Obviously, you took over Merrill Lynch at the height of the, the crash in, in the 2000s. So, you know, it, it, you seem to be an institution that is well used to navigating these periods. Yeah, consolidation in every industry is challenging, especially when there's stress. But back to your question, Emmett, uh, stress uh, is far away from us, thank God. Uh, different market shocks have been absorbed, and the la latest one was clearly covid but then you have also, of course, uh, issues like the Russia in invasion of Ukraine, 
where all of a sudden markets are caught by surprise, energy prices spike, clients get impacted, who actually tells you how things are developing? I mean, one interesting way to watch, of course, potential impact on the industry is credit card defaults. Uh, in America, we have obviously a large retail and commercial bank, and there we follow closely consumer spending and then different patterns, how things develop. But for the time being, things look relatively fine, and we should not underestimate Ireland is doing particularly well these days. Huh? Ireland uh, got just upgraded to double A minus credit rating. Yeah, it was our problem here is we now have, we're generating these big surpluses that are a massive by historical standards. But the problem is, how do we deploy those? You know, and do we have the infrastructure and the capacity to to sort of turn that into real life things, tangible things, infrastructure or changes to the way the economy works and make it more productive. So it, it, having loads of money is not necessarily uh, always the, the answer. You have to be able to sort of deploy it in the right areas. So we'll have to see how that goes. And then, Fernando, one thing I didn't ask you about before we go, I know you have a representative role for the international banks that are based in the city. I know that you, you, you uh, head up a group of representatives for them. Is there particular issues that the, the international banking institutions are looking at it while they're in Dublin? Is there particular things they're, they're, they're hoping to happen or things that can catalyze further growth? So uh, the Federation of International Banks is basically an industry body where around about 40 banks come together representing 14,000 employees here in Dublin. And the job is to basically follow regulatory developments. For example, there's a new senior executive accountability regime that is actually being implemented next year. And, uh, and that requires that you give feedback to the legislators so that this can be implemented uh, smoothly without disruption. But it keeps you basically into uh, a framework. It puts you into a framework of what you're supposed to be doing as a bank executive to run a bank properly. And what are your liabilities if you don't do it properly? The other thing is non-financial reporting requirements are exponentially growing, including, by the way, because of climate risk. So then these banks, they come together, working groups, how can we have a, if you will, consistent uh, disclosure of our climate risk profiles in our annual reports, which quite frankly, five and 10 years ago, nobody cared about the climate risk exposure of banks. Perhaps in the insurance industry that provides insurance coverage against climate risk, it may be more sophisticated, but not in the banking industry, which is now, of course, taken off massively and there will be mandatory reporting requirements in the in the coming years and our job is to exchange thoughts early engage with regulators legislators and have a voice that has a seat on the table and it's fun you know i quite enjoy the company of other ceo colleagues and if you take for example the space of instant payments well we all know now you run around with your mobile phone you make your payments but the technology behind the anti-money laundering screening processes behind to make sure that I can send you, Emmett, right now, 1,000 euros. Please that do. All, that all requires a lot of work. <laughs> I'll take it even without the anti-money laundering uh, controls in place. Um, but it's also important to mention that the scale of the international banking industry post-Brexit is massive here in Ireland. I think it's sometimes not fully appreciated. I think you've got some interesting statistics about how much it has grown since the Brexit sort of shakeout. Well, uh, post-Brexit, Ireland is the number two beneficiary after Germany in terms of assets under management that moved out of London into the European Union. And uh, Ireland has more than 4 trillion euros 
of assets under management that moved over here. That's a lot of money. So we don't have therefore only banks, you have also important asset managers and other financial services companies here in Ireland that service the much, much broader ecosystem. I alluded earlier to the fact that uh, fintech provides some great competition and innovation, so do we, but also it's complementary because some of the services that we offer, we can also buy them from others and then have a delivery channel that our client can bank on. And that's the job of this Federation of International Bank to be on top of developments and help its members, including, by the way, training in general and, and, and frequent updates. At Bank of America, I have a so-called public policy department where people obviously keep an eye on what's going on in our industry so that we are never blindsided and always comply, comply with all the laws, rules and, and regulations. It's very interesting that you say that because the original narrative around Brexit was Yes, lots of banks will move assets out of the UK into other European locations, but the people may not. It might be just financial flows rather than people flows. But what you're saying from a Bank of America point of view is actually people did flow as well. Well, according to the regulatory requirements, I'm supposed to be in Ireland. I can't manage the bank from southern Spain. Senior executive accountability regime and similar other regulations They require that the accountable management sits in the bank, in the location. We don't, I mean, Ireland and other countries don't want some kind of shelf companies where you have 10 people, billions of assets, and if something happens, you can't call anybody. That is the past. The present means accountability, and the future means even more accountability. Think about the world of data, data management, data protection. According to our research, the world uses basically 1% of data today. And data quantity is exponentially growing. So if we manage to do a better job as an industry and as a society to manage data, first of all, responsibly, but also smartly, there will be an amazing amount of job opportunities that get us to a different place. And you obviously know that today in your iPhone, you have so many uh, sources of information that uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we were just in a different league. So the speed of developments, we need to adjust. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to actually have to end the conversation because you, you, it's been so interesting that it's gone way over our normal allotted time. So uh, that's a good tribute to the flow of conversation. Very interesting stuff. And we don't get to talk enough to the international banks here. They tend to get neglected. We're so obsessed with the retail banks for other reasons. So... It's good to get that fresh perspective. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of employees. There's a lot of investment. And there's deep roots going into the ground on the back of the Brexit process. So we won't get into our UK friends, but we are we are one of the beneficiaries of how that has gone. So at least this interview has shown us some side of that, which doesn't get discussed enough. So thank you very much for your time, Fernando. Um, good luck in the next few years. I hope you enjoy the Irish lifestyle. I hope you get out and about from Dublin and do some travel to different parts of the country, north and south. I hope that's part of your your personal plans as well. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, it has been a pleasure and uh, best of luck to all the students to get great grades and enjoy themselves too, by the way. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world, so there's sure to be something there for everyone. 
I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes, and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver, and we hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact. Business Impact.